Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Rachel Robertson, author of Respect Trump's Harmony. And if you'd like to learn how to successfully build professional relationships, you need to be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. Get on board. Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place because this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rachel Robertson. Rachel spent 12 months in the Antarctic where she led the 58th Australian National Antarctic Research Expedition to Davis Station. She was the second female and one of the youngest to ever lead a team at the station. She managed a team of 18 people through the long, dark Antarctic winter and built a resilient and highly successful team based on the foundation that respect Trump's harmony. Since returning to Australia, Rachel has completed her MBA. She is an international keynote speaker and has written two best-selling books, Leading on the Edge, based on Antarctica, and her latest book, Respect Trump's Harmony, uh, which was released back in April of 2020. Guys, it's going to be such a fun conversation that we're going to have with Rachel. I can't wait to jump into some of those things. First, really quickly, if you're a seven-figure entrepreneur and you know you know how beneficial starting a podcast could be for your company, for your business, for your personal brand, for your relationships, whatever it is, but you just don't really know how to get one out into the world, then have me and my team do that for you. We'll take out all the guesswork in the equation. So all you have to do is show up and hit the record button. We'll take it and turn it into a podcast for you. Head over to travischapel.com slash make my podcast. There's a quick application. We'll jump on a phone call to see if we'd be a good fit to build out a show for you so you can focus on servicing your clients and we can focus on building out a world-class podcast for you. That's travischapel.com slash make my 
podcast. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me, Travis. It's great to be here. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so many things that I want to jump into. But let's start with the story, okay? For those who don't know where you come from, what your past is, let's start like, let's go all the way back. I'm talking like 12, 13-year-old Rachel Robertson. What are you up to at this point? Ask me about family life, school, interests, likes, dislikes. What, what were you up to back then? I was not the poster child for school back in, back in the day. I was actually quite naughty at high school. I think I was bored. I'm not sure. But I, uh, yeah, I didn't really enjoy high school. And you um, interested in the subject matter, perhaps. Yeah, I think that was it. And I think it was, it was back in the day where the, the schools tried to really influence what subjects we took in the, in the senior years of high school rather than choosing something that you're passionate about. The school sort of steered you towards certain paths because it looked better for the school to have these graduates with certain backgrounds. And I still think that the defining moment probably was when I was 16 and our English teacher was studying poetry and English literature and she said, pick a song that you love and we'll deconstruct the song for prose and for lyrics and stuff. And so I picked a song that was really big in Australia at the time called Power and the Passion by a band called Midnight Oil. And in that song is a lyric that says, it's better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. And I heard that as a 16-year-old girl and it just, it knocked me sideways and it actually changed my life because from that moment, I thought, wow, what a way to live. Just have a go, have a crack at something and just live life. And so from then on, I went to you know university in a town 500 miles away where I didn't know anyone. I've had a lot of different career moves, but it's all, I can trace it back to that defining moment where I just had this epiphany of, yeah, what a great way to live your life. Just have a go, have a go. Were your parents always in support of whatever you really wanted to do or they were trying to push you to a certain career path at all? No, they were really in support. I was the first one in my family to go to university to okay. get a tertiary education. So I think they were just stoked. They were just proud that one of their children, I'm, I'm the eldest, which that has a big influence too. Being the eldest influenced me because when mum went back to work part-time, I was the leader in the family for my brother and sister. So we'd come home from school and I'd have to look after my brother and sister for an hour or so until mum got home. And so from a really young age, I was in leadership roles, which I didn't recognise at the time. I can look back now and go, yeah, that was the case. But at the time, I didn't recognise that that was they were leadership roles from probably the age of seven or eight. Yeah, I find that there's a lot of correlation between the amount of responsibility that you have at what age you are in terms of where you end up and how quickly you get there. I don't know if that made sense at all, but it seems like people who are younger that have a certain amount of responsibility at an age where most people maybe don't have that level of responsibility tend to go down a path that leads them to where they actually want to be. And it seems like that was the case with you, which is a really cool perspective to be able to bring to the table when you were you know, in that university setting. When you went to university, what was the main area of study for you? Funnily enough, I studied public relations and journalism. So oh, really? Okay. How I, yeah, how I ended up in Antarctica. I was going to say, so naturally you went to Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would love to sit here and say, oh, it was a brilliant strategic career move. It wasn't. It wasn't. I was just reading a newspaper one Saturday morning and I saw a picture of a penguin in the, the careers section, the jobs vacant section of the newspaper. And that's what caught my eye because it's a bit weird seeing penguins in those sections. And it was advertising this job for a station leader in Antarctica. And what intrigued me was the employer, which is the Australian Antarctic Division, which is similar to the United States Antarctic Program. They recruit for qualities. So they recruit for resilience, empathy, and integrity. You don't actually need to know anything about Antarctica because they figure we can't teach you resilience or empathy or integrity in three months, but we can teach 
teach you the technical stuff. And I just thought, what a fantastic way to recruit, to get people who've got qualities you need for a job like resilience. So my plan was only ever to apply for the job to get to the job interview stage so I could find out what the questions were they were using and I could copy them and bring them back to my team. It was only after I applied that I find out they don't have an interview. They have a boot camp that goes for a week. So I end up on this boot camp with 13 men competing for a job I didn't want. And then they rang and offered it to me. And it was that whole, you know, I'd rather regret what I did than regret what I didn't do. And so the Mm. only reason I ended up down there was this this sliding doors moment where I saw a thing in a newspaper and I thought, wow, that's interesting. And I looked at the risk and I thought, the worst thing that can happen is I get down to Antarctica. And of course, you can't come home. You're stuck there for a year. And I thought, I get down there and I hate it. To me, that was a lower risk than not doing it and spending the rest of my life wondering what if, what if I'd done that. So it really was just a matter of regret what I did rather than regret what I didn't do. I love that system. It's really a system for decision-making. Anytime you get a decision to help you make better decisions and not give in to the emotions that you're feeling in the moment, I think is a really good thing. And, and that's one of the things that I've always used for some big risks that I've looked at taking as well, Rachel, is that I think it's Tony Robbins that calls it the rocking chair test or like the front front porch test or something like that, where basically the principle is if you're 90 years old and you're sitting on the rocking chair on your front porch and you're looking out at your yard and you're thinking about your life, will you regret not making this decision? Because at that point, it's too late and you've already lived the majority of your life and you don't have very many opportunities going forward to be able to capitalize on all the things that you would have been able to when you were 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. That's such a, I think, such a good rule of thumb to look at, look at decision making that way rather than like, what does this cost me in the short term? And thinking of it in terms of my entire life. And will I, at some point, look back on this decision and be like, man, I, I should have gone for it. I should have at least tried it out. You know, and I think a lot of times. That's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that you would agree that we all make the worst case scenario seem like it's this life ending thing. And really, it's not. It's just maybe like, oh, it, it'll take me a year longer to do what I'm going to do. You know what I mean? Like oh, in the grand scheme of life, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's spot on. And I think that that's the thing. If you make a decision and it's not the right one, if you go for a promotion and you get the job and you don't enjoy it, or you start your own business and it doesn't succeed after three or four years, whatever the decision, if, if you don't agree with it or you don't like it or it's not working out, make another decision. You can easily pivot or change or move or make another decision. So I thought I say, particularly when I'm mentoring young women professionally, and I say, look, the only decision that you can't unmake is having children because once you have kids, you've got them forever. You know, they're your children for life. I said, you know, even if you marry someone and decide, oh, gee, I shouldn't have done that, you can divorce them. It's not romantic, but there's not too many decisions that are forever. As long as you keep that front of mind, that gives you the courage then to have a go and make the bold decision because it's not forever. Sure. I love that line of thinking. So you go to this application process that is for a job that you don't really want, but then they offer it to you and you figure, hey, what's the worst that could happen? This seems like a cool adventure. You're there for 12, 14 months. Is that right? Yes. During that time, were there any regrets on the decision? Plenty. Yeah. And I can I can say that now. <laughs> I can say it to you now. At the time, I had to not show that. At the time, I had to... It was a really fine balance between being authentic and showing vulnerability. And that took me a long time. That took me probably three or four months to wrap my head around that. As a woman leading a team of mostly men, of the 18 of us, there were 14 men. And I was very conscious being only the second woman at that station that I didn't want to be seen as too soft or... Yeah not strong enough for the role. And so it was It was Easter, March or April. We'd been there, yeah, four or five months when I was really homesick and somebody asked me, you know, how are you going? How, how, how you been? And, um, and I thought, wow, how do I tell them? 
Do I tell them the truth and say, look, I'm a bit homesick right now? Or do I pretend everything's fine and everything's okay? And and so I didn't. I thought, no, I'm going to be honest. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm still enjoying the expedition. I love being here. I just miss my family. I really wish I could go home for one weekend, see my family and friends, give them a big hug and then come back. And that moment was so important in the relationship I had with the team because it humanized me. It made me just like you guys. I'm no different as your leader. The second, the most powerful thing was it also gave permission then for them because the leader had shown shown that vulnerability and said, look, I'm just a bit homesick. It meant they could talk about it too. And it's and so we could talk about these issues openly and honestly, and nothing was being repressed. And there was not going to be this you know, emotional outburst from anyone because we talked about things as they happened. So yeah, I had many moments. The big lesson for me was to learn how to reveal that vulnerability. I guess it's a, a um, considered vulnerability, but it's talking about, yeah, this is how I feel right now. And that's the truth. Describe for me a day in Antarctica. What were you doing? What was the average day? What did you do on a daily basis? Because you can't, you can't yeah, really just go outside and do anything. Right? No. So what, what are you doing? No. And that's a great question because I had no idea before I left, but it's really different in summer and winter. So summer, we have 120 people on the station. I think the US station McMurdo has sometimes up to 1,000 people. So that's the scientists doing all their their climate change, global warming research. So we've got planes and helicopters, 24 hours of daylight. It's fun. There's normally enough people on the community that you can start your own band and have, you know, sing-alongs and concerts. And it's really fun. They go home in February and then 18 of us stay behind for the next nine months. And we're there purely for asset management, for maintenance. We just keep the joint running, keep it warm till the next summer. Then it's 24 hours of darkness and it's boring and it's Groundhog Day. And so my role then as a leader changes from one of managing operations to managing morale and managing, Mm -hmm. actually leading this team through a really difficult isolation, you know, nine months of isolation. And it's you know the same old thing every day. We're doing the same thing with the same people, eating the same food, seeing the same sights for, for nine months. And I had to get really creative. Well, how do I get my team through this? How do I keep them motivated and stop them, you know, killing each other basically? Because it was it's a lot of interpersonal pressure. And I think every person on the planet can now relate to that after the recent <laughs> yeah. experience in pandemic. That's a training for quarantine right there. Yeah. <laughs> and and I sort of hope I look around now and I hope that most of us have been in lockdown with people that we love or at least like. Yeah, um, yeah. But we were in lockdown. We, some people didn't even like each other. And it's like, holy dooly, we're here for around the clock for, for nine months and we can't yeah. change our minds. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters 
is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Well, I have to assume like weather conditions and darkness and all those things that have to affect mental health even to a certain extent, right? Absolutely. And just the mundane nature, the other issue with the darkness and, and the cold and no distractions. So we don't have TV or radio. There's limited download capability. So you could download a podcast in winter, but certainly not in summer when you've got that huge population because we need the bandwidth to be free. Mm. So there's no distraction. There's nothing going on. So you spend a lot of time in your own head, which has is a good and a bad thing. It's a good thing in going back to your, your story about the rocking chair on the porch. You do a lot of that reflection, a lot of that, am I where I wanted to be in my life right now? Am I with who I wanted to be with? And you reflect on where you are in your life because you've got that time. You're not having to drive anywhere or go to meetings. It's it's just a very slow lifestyle. But then the downside is you spend a lot of time in your head. And so if there is a tiny little niggly issue, it can blow up in your mind because there's nothing to distract you. So you have to, that's where the resilience comes in. That's why they recruit for resilience because you have to be self-aware enough to go, okay, I need to stop dwelling on this now and I need to go and distract myself and go and do something because yeah, there's a lot of time inside your own head. Do you have any strategies or tips or advice for somebody who maybe is trying to learn how to spend more time with themselves because obviously obviously in regular life it's the complete opposite problem it's that we have too many distractions it's that our attention can be pulled away in a half a second with this ding and that buzz and that notification and we're highly distracted society if somebody's listening to this and they're really trying to be more introspective and trying to get to know themselves better because that's ultimately what that is is being inside of your own head is getting to know who you are which a lot of times a lot of people live their entire lives without ever really doing that sort of like self-reflective introspection type of a thing and so do you have any do you have any advice for anybody trying to navigate those waters Yeah, the one thing that really helped me, and this was a mentoring tip. So as I said, I was a second woman. I had dinner with the first woman. Her name was Diana. And she said to me, she suggested I keep a journal. And I'm like, oh God, you know, who's got time for diaries and journals? But sometimes with your mentors, you you have to appreciate their experience and go, well, she's done this. She knows what she's on about. So I'm going to trust that she knows what she's on about. And so I kept a journal. And every night, religiously, every single night, I wrote in this book, probably 10 or 15 minutes. But what it did, it did two things. It, it got the emotion out. So it meant I slept better. So rather than dwelling on things and waking up at three o'clock in the morning, churning things over in my head, I'd got that emotion out on the page. It also improved my leadership because I had no one tapping me on the shoulder saying, why did you do that, Rachel? Or you got that wrong? Or you, you know, And so I could reflect on my leadership and go, well, what's happened here? Is that the team or is that my leadership that's created that issue. And then the other one was what you're talking about is that looking at myself and and almost like standing on a balcony, looking down, watching myself and working out why I was reacting certain ways. And it just gave me that headspace to to go, why I'm feeling like this today? What is it? And it was just that stillness and the quietness, but it was a discipline of spending that 15 minutes at the end of the day when sometimes you're really tired. My only rule on keeping a journal is it has to be handwritten because I think if you type it up on a computer, you start spell checking and you check your, your grammar and that's not what 
journals for it's to reflect and to grow and develop it's not about perfect English and getting perfect prose so yeah my only rule on journals is it has to be handwritten you can't type one up top story one of the first things that comes to your mind about your time in Antarctica the most important thing I learned down there was a tool that we use called no triangles and no triangles is just I don't speak to you about Travis if I have something to say to him I go directly to him I do not take it to a third party and it changed my life because what it meant was it built respect in the team we always went straight to each person, to each other. So it freed up my time as a leader and my energy because those conversations where someone comes to you and just whinges and complains and goes, he did this and they're exhausting mm. and they don't want you to do anything about okay. it. They're just they're just <laughs> venting. Yeah. And, and I always thought there's nothing wrong with that. And then I realized, well, there is because I'm actually saying it's okay for you to talk about Travis behind his back rather than talk to him directly. And so once we implemented it, it took two months to implement no triangles, but it freed up my time and energy. So suddenly I had the energy to lead my people because I'm not caught up in those conversations. So I've now taken that into my private life and my personal life. And I do it now, even at school. If someone talks to me about one of the school teachers, I'll say, one of the other parents, I'll say, well, we'll go and talk to the teacher. You know, I, I can't really do much about it for you. And so no triangles was the one thing I wish I had done 30 40 years ago, because it just changed my life. <laughs> Practicing that type of radical honesty really is is a learned skill. That's why people don't do it, because it doesn't feel good to tell somebody that you disagree with the thing that they did, or you don't like how they behaved in a certain thing. That's why you're saying it behind their back, because you feel awkward bringing it up to their face, because it doesn't feel good to have that tension there in, in, that, in that relationship. And so practicing that radical honesty is something that we could all learn from, even in our interpersonal relationships and marriages and, and different things like that. To be able to be honest with somebody even when you think it might hurt their feelings or make them feel a certain way that you don't want them to feel, but still saying like, look, this is how I'm feeling about this. And if I don't tell you this, I'm probably just going to tell that person it's not ever going to do anything. And uh, yeah, love that advice. So talk to me now about coming back. What was the excitement level for you being you know, stuck in literal darkness for months on end, coming back home? And then how was that transition back into, you know, regular normal life. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's, I'm having, you know, flashbacks at the moment as cities are opening up around the world. Coming home, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to see everyone and eat fresh food and uh, walk on the beach or, you know, just do anything different. And then when I got back, the opposite happened. I was overwhelmed. I was completely overwhelmed. And I think that's the case now with a lot of us coming out of isolation. There'll be people who are really excited and there'll be people who are quite stressed and anxious and there'll be a whole heap of us in the middle. And I wasn't prepared for it. I was not prepared for things like the choice that you have suddenly. When you've been in, in the lockdown for nine months, you've got very little choice. You know, you, you can't go and decide what you're going to do on a weekend or where you're going to drive to or what you're going to do, who you're going to catch up with, what restaurant you'll go to, what theatre. And so suddenly I've gone from this really small space to suddenly all this choice. And I remember standing in the breakfast cereal aisle and just being over overwhelmed at the choice of breakfast cereal because for a year we had, I think, two choices, whatever the chef decided. So bacon and eggs one day and then maybe muesli or cereal the next day. And suddenly there's all this choice. And the other one that really overwhelmed was physical contact um, because for a year, particularly being a, a woman leader down there, I was very mindful of my personal boundaries with the men. And so I wouldn't hug them because I didn't want them to misjudge any kind of gesture. And so I didn't hug them and I was quite, you know, arm's length from all of the men. And then you come back to the real world and everyone's happy to see you and they want to give you a big hug and sometimes it's a bit, oh, hang on, <laughs> you know, I haven't, I've been away for a year without any physical oh, no. contact. So yeah, coming home was really overwhelming. And it, I think right now for any of us in, in 
our relationships, whether it's partners at home or at work or teams we're leading, I think that needs to be front of mind at the moment that people will respond differently in the next three to six months. People will respond really differently and it might be different to what you would respond and that's okay. You know, let's have that empathy for each other. You get back home, you go through all of that transition now and then you decide to go back to school. Is that right? Yes. What was the main driving factor behind the decision to go get your MBA? Yeah, that was, we have a a debrief with a psychologist on the way home and because it takes two weeks to sail home on an icebreaker. And that's when you have your debrief. And she said to me, you need a new challenge. She said, you'll come off the back of this big high and potentially, you know, you might get depression. So think about a new challenge for yourself that you can set yourself. And it sort of goes back to our very first conversation today that I didn't get the most out of high school. I, um, you know, I, did, I went there because I had to go. I didn't go there to learn. I went because I had to. And so I thought as a grown up, as a, you know, I was 36 years old, I think when I got back, and I thought, I'm going to go back to university. I'm going to go back and study as an adult and try and enjoy learning, you know, not be there because I have to be there. And I thought, well, I've done leadership. I've done that. So what can I do? And I thought, I really would like to do an MBA and understand, you know, the different pressures that are on businesses from, you know, different angles. And so I went to do this MBA. And funnily enough, within four weeks of starting the MBA, I met my now husband and we have a child. So my job my husband, my child, my entire life, I can trace back to this little advertisement I saw in a newspaper one Saturday morning many years ago. If I hadn't seen that newspaper, I wouldn't be here talking to you and I wouldn't have my husband and my son and my career. So it's just extraordinary how life just unfolds with opportunity. I love it. I love the way that the randomness sometimes with opportunity. And uh, yeah, so that, that was the, um, the advice of the psychologist. She didn't suggest I get married, but she did suggest <laughs> I think of a new challenge. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about your book. Before we hit the record button, we're kind of both going on about this topic a little bit. And I find that it's very appropriate for the culture that we're living in at the moment. So the, the book's called Respect Trump's Harmony. And this was one of the big driving principles for your successful team expedition down in Antarctica. So I would love to hear what was the the catalyst that made you write the book? And then maybe what are a couple of the top takeaways that you really want people to get from that? The catalyst for the book was constantly getting questions. So I, I travel around the world now as a professional keynote speaker. And no matter where I work in the world, I get similar questions, which blows me away. So there are small cultural differences, particularly in in different parts of Asia and Europe, but generally it's similar themes. And it was things around how do I get my team to collaborate better? How do I improve innovation? How do I get them to talk openly and, and address conflict before it blows up. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to write about what I did with my team. And because my team were excellent at all of, all three of those things. And what we did was we we made the mantra, respect Trump's harmony. And it just meant we don't have to agree with each other. We don't even have to love each other, but we will always treat each other with respect. And when that's the foundation, when that's the bedrock of a relationship, it means you can address those issues because I'm not doing this personally. It's because respect is the number one thing. So when people say to me, my team won't innovate, we get there's a lack of innovation. It's because there's usually there's a culture of harmony, of keep the peace, turn a blind eye, you know, smooth things over. So when they're in meetings, they're those meetings where people sit in a meeting and they nod and go, yep, yep, yep. And then they walk out and go, that's not going to work. And you think, why didn't you say that in the meeting? And it's because, oh, we want to keep the peace. And I think when you focus on harmony, three things happen. So bullying and harassment, all that bad behavior, it still goes on. It just goes underground because people won't put their hand up and report it. 
The second thing is innovation, is that people won't offer a conflicting view or a difference of opinion or a different experience because, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. And the third one is around safety and mental health, that when you focus on harmony, that's when people turn a blind eye. So if someone's doing something risky or unsafe, and particularly in financial services, we've seen it all around the world, people are aware of some behavior that's going on that shouldn't be happening, but they walk past it because they they turn a blind eye. And mental health, if the focus is harmony, isn't it great here? We're like a big family. It's wonderful. No one puts their hand up and says, actually, I'm not great today. And I think you're much better going for respect. And my team were were brilliant. We had a plane crash and we had to lead this search and rescue following a plane crash. The team were brilliant. We were brilliant under pressure, but it was never because we loved each other. It was because we had that foundation of respect. We truly respected each person and their contribution. We didn't like each other. Um, yeah. Certainly didn't love each other, all of us, but we did respect every single person and their their contribution to the team. Yeah, that is such the baseline. Like I said, it's so culturally appropriate at the moment because of how much people love to tear each other down. And because of just disagreements on certain things. They're obviously opinions because if they were facts, then they wouldn't be able to be argued. So if 50% of people think one thing and 50% of people think another thing, then those are opinions that we're disagreeing about. So we're disagreeing about things that can't even be proven to the point where we're willing to like tear other people down and be extremely just rude, aggressive, mean like a kid on the playground again. And having that fundamental agreement that we will treat each other with respect regardless of if we agree and even if we end up knowing that we disagree you know what i mean it doesn't mean that it doesn't yeah. mean that we're agreeing you know we're, we're disagreeing right now but in the future we'll come together and we'll agree at some point later it's like no 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 in case we never agree it doesn't matter we can still respect each other as human beings and have that just base level of respect that can allow us to have a relationship going forward. And that's such a perfect way to transition this conversation a little bit. I know we're running out of time, so I want to make sure that I talk with you a little bit about relationship building and, and communication networking, which we've already kind of really talked about a bunch on the, sh- on, on the episode so far. But this is the question, Rachel, that I've asked every guest that's ever come on the show. So curious to hear your response. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? Good one. I think... Who you know and knowing what they know. So there you go. I'll have a beat a bet each way. I think for me, as particularly leading in Antarctica, when I wasn't a technical specialist, I didn't know anything about climate change science. I certainly didn't know about construction and, and trades or even weather observations that we have to do down there. But I knew who did know. And so having that relationship and knowing what they know I would use that information to inform my decisions. Mm. And I think it's who you know, but also understanding what they know and how you can help them. So I think with in terms of networking and relationships, if you can understand what drives somebody else and how you can support them and what their knowledge is, that's really great information. So you can you can help them and they can help you out. It's, it's a mutual exchange there. So for me, you know, People are often gobsmacked that I didn't know anything about Antarctic science and, you know, I'm managing a, a multi, multi-million dollar science program. And I, I point out to them, I say, I'm not managing science, I'm managing scientists, I'm managing people. Yeah. And, and that's transferable. That skill and ability to manage people can transfer across any industry in any sector. And so I didn't need to be an expert in glaciology. I needed to be an expert in conflict resolution or negotiation. So yeah, I think it's certainly who you know, but equally understanding what they know is really helpful too. So last question before we move into the final segment here, would you recommend 
people go give a visit to Antarctica. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even I think some of the cruises leave for, they're about two weeks, I think is the minimum one from South America now. It's um, just for the color, you know, like I always thought Antarctica was white because I never knew about Antarctica. I just thought it was white. What I didn't know until I lived there was that it's so cold. There's little crystals floating in the sky. And when the sun hits the crystals, it refracts the light and there's pinks and oranges and blues and greens and colors that don't even have a name wow. floating in the sky and they're, they're called um, sun pillars or sun dogs. They've got different different names. So there's like these halo effects all through the sky of color. And I didn't know that. I thought Antarctica was just purely white. Yeah. And so yeah. even just for that, just for that experience, I would say, do it, get down there. So definitely go in the summertime though. Yeah. And that's, you have to go in summer. I think you can only, yeah, you can only so go, in, you winter go, you're you go in winter. Because you go in winter, you literally can't come back until winter's that's, over. Yeah. And that's by invitation only. So you can only get there in winter if you're working there. It's okay. part of the treaty. So all of the countries, you know, and it's really good to remind ourselves at the moment with the world, the way it is that, Antarctica is managed by a team of nations. There's no government. So we manage it in peace and cooperation in the entire world. And so to live there in winter is only if you're working there. So we can't have tourism in winter and we don't certainly don't have explorers trying to traverse the continent in winter. But summer is when tourism op- opens up. Even then you have to stay on the ship. You can't sleep on the on the continent. But just to see the wildlife, you know, up close, the seals up close and even you know, the colours are extraordinary. And that the colours are there in summer. They're beautiful. In winter, of course, you have the big, the southern lights. So the aurora australis, which is like the aurora Aurora Borealis in the north, the beautiful light show, this green curtain of light just dancing through the sky. And when you're trying to stay resilient and you're thinking, why have I done this? I'm really homesick. They're the moments that get you through. They're the moments where you look up and you go, that's why I did this. This is why I'm here. It's to experience that. Absolutely love it, Rachel. It's been such a fascinating conversation. And I'm sad that we need to move into the last segment here, but I want to be respectful of your time. So let's go ahead and move into the random round. Just a few quick random questions, a few quick answers. Ready? Yep. What profession, other than your own, do you think that it would be fun to attempt? Oh, I'd love to be a pilot. I've been lucky enough to sit on the flight deck flying over Antarctica. Once a year we fly over and I would love to do that for a living. I think you get to see some really cool places and just that vista, that view of places from the air is amazing. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and chat for an hour, who would it be? At the moment, Jacinda Ardern, who's the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who's gone through the pandemic, um, a volcanic eruption, a massive terrorism attack, and had her first child all in her first term of government. And I just, I would love to sit with her and go, girlfriend, how do you do that? How do you do it? How do you keep fronting up every day when there must be moments where you just go, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to pull that yeah, the bedspread over my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, how do you like to consume content, Rachel? Blogs? Books, audiobooks, yeah. podcasts, videos. I read a lot because I spend a lot of time traveling on planes. The Wi-Fi is often patchy, so I read a lot of books and I love the short books. So my book at the moment is a book called Useful Belief, which is an author called Chris Helder. And you can read it in a two-hour flight. And it just really simply says, if you can't change something, or you don't want to change something, it's better to have a useful belief about it. So I can't change the fact I have to travel every day for work. I don't want to change it because I get to go to cool countries. So my useful belief around sitting in airport lounges and with delayed flights is that this gives me an opportunity to experience amazing people and culture. So I have to keep that useful belief because I can't change it and I don't want to change it. So yeah, useful belief. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. <laughs> it's a bit chaotic at the moment. I'm doing a lot of work in the US, but you know it's great because I can finally work in the US. 
rest because the travel was usually too prohibitive. So um, I'm up at five o'clock or six o'clock. You know, I've got a broadcast studio firing up my studio to talk to someone somewhere in America. And then I'll, I'll yeah, finish here and then I'll go and uh, feed, get my 11-year-old up and get him off to homeschool. I'm homeschooling for a couple of hours because we're in lockdown in Melbourne. So I homeschool and then I'll have a break and go for a walk. So it's it's sort of a bit, as you do, yeah, we adapt at the moment. The whole world's just adapting and we're just getting by. Hey, we're doing what we need to do. What is your go-to pump-up song? <laughs> at the moment, it's um, I Am Giant by Kelvin Harris. Do you know it? I Am Giant. I Am Giant. And it's just got this fantastic horn section of trumpets. Yet, no, but I, I like Kelvin. Harris, so I'm sure. Yeah, look it up. I am giant. It's called. What is something that you are just not very good at? My goodness, tying knot, just tying two bits of rope into a knot. And trust me, I've had to learn how to, I've been trained in this for Antarctica. I'm a professional firefighter. I was a park ranger for 19 years. So it's it's something I really should be comfortable with, but I'm hopeless. I go sailing with my family and my husband will say, can you do a, a bow line? I don't even know if that's what you call it, a bow line or a bow line. Yeah. And I'm like, nah, I, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> And it's something I should know. I just cannot get my head around how to do a knot. I don't know how to tie knots. Perfect answer. Perfect answer. (laughs) As we get everything wrapped up here, Rachel, what is one place online where listeners can go to connect with you the most? I'm really active on my website. So my website is just rachelrobertson.com or grab me on LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn networking and um, catching up with people there, which is, yeah, I love it. Awesome. So Rachel Robertson over on LinkedIn, as well as rachelrobertson.com. Go check out some of the stuff that she's put out there. Definitely pick up a copy of her book, Respect Trump's Harmony. Again, very, very appropriate for the time that we are living in at the moment. Rachel, can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This is such a fun conversation. My absolute pleasure. I've been laughing too. So thank you very much for your time. It's been wonderful. Well, that's it for today's show. If you want more advanced networking strategies, as well as an instant network upgrade, then consider partnering with my BYN Inner Circle Mastermind. There are already dozens of high quality entrepreneurs in the group. There's dozens of video lessons on networking. There's monthly calls, there's accountability crews and more, all for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month. So head over to byninnercircle.com to jump in. That's byninnercircle.com. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We'll see you next time. Remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.